All right, we're going to get started here again. Hey, Sherwin. How are you doing, man? I see you. So invite everyone to come on back in to the sanctuary here. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Brett. I want to welcome you today. Welcome everyone watching online today. So good of you to join us. Uh, we've been doing a series here looking at some of the, I, I call them power psalms, some of the famous, well-known, very encouraging, very powerful psalms. We've looked at Psalm 91. We've looked at Psalm 23. And today we're going to look at Psalm 51. Go ahead and turn your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 51. And I'm going to talk about everyone's favorite topic today, repentance. Um, <laughs> Psalm 51 doesn't, doesn't seem to fit with our, our theme of, in Psalm 91 and, and Psalm 23. You know, those Psalms are so, they have such encouraging and such powerful promises for the believer. Is that true? But anyone who has experienced true repentance knows that there's no better place to be than when you are standing right with God. Free from shame and blame. Amen? Knowing that there is nothing standing between you and God. And that's what repentance does. It, it, it removes obstacles. It removes hindrances in your relationship with God. Anything that's preventing you from full intimacy, from being completely close with God the Father. Repentance lifts the heaviness and the burden of sin. It makes us light. It gives us reprieve. Right? It's, it's like when we're carrying something really heavy, maybe on our backs, right? And it affects our posture, and, and we're struggling, and we're grunting, and it's just, it's a lot. It's so heavy. But then when, we, when you lay it down, when you put it down, what do we do? We do that. We give that sigh of relief. <sighs> That's what repentance does. It lets us stand tall, and it lets us Breathe that sigh of relief, that sigh of, of liberation of what we've been carrying. Repentance frees us. Amen? Amen? And so today we're going to look at what real repentance is. This prayer of David is completely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so God shows us in this psalm, Psalm 51, what genuine repentance looks like. Okay? So first, we're just going to begin with the backstory, just understanding why David's praying this prayer. And Psalm 51 really begins in 2 Samuel 11. David is king. He's about 45 years old. Okay, Israel has experienced incredible prosperity and victory under his rule for about 15 consecutive years. Okay. And so David <clears throat> is on the terrace of his palace, 
looks over all of Jerusalem and he sees a woman named Bathsheba and she's bathing. And David doesn't just notice her, doesn't just see her, but he watches her. How many of you have heard that expression, the first looks free, but the second one's going to cost you? Okay. And, um, and when we keep on looking, what we're doing is we're, in, we're, we're giving lust an opportunity to come in and to take over. And so David finds out who, she's, who she is. And, and he learns that Bathsheba is actually married to Uriah. Okay? Uriah is one of David's most trusted and loyal soldiers. Okay, he's actually one of David's mighty men. Remember we talked about David's mighty men on Father's Day. Okay, he's one of the 37 personal bodyguard to the king. So he's not just a fierce warrior, but he's also one of David's closest friends. But David is so consumed with lust that he sends for Bathsheba, he sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant with his child. Old Testament law says in Deuteronomy 22, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. So David knows the law. Okay, and so David is, tries to cover this up by eventually plotting to kill Uriah in battle. And so he talks to Joab, the leader of his army, and he has Joab put Uriah at the front line's of the battle, and then in the midst of the battle, he pulls back his forces, leaving Uriah to be killed. And he was. So David then marries Bathsheba. She delivers their child. And then about a year after that, God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin. And so Nathan does this in a way that, that causes David to actually see his sin and see his true condition. So he tells him a story. He tells him David's story, but he doesn't use David's name. And David hears this story, and he is absolutely enraged by this. He can't believe that someone has done this in his kingdom, and he wants this guy to be killed immediately. We are so good at judging other people when we do the same things. Except when other people do it, we call it sin. But when we do it, we say it was a mistake. And then Nathan says, David, you're the person I'm talking about. You're the, you're, you're the person in the story that I'm talking about. I'm talking about you and I'm talking about your sin. And when he said that, the conviction of the Holy Spirit absolutely crushed him. It crushed him. It, this rebuke from the Holy Spirit breaks his heart. And God brought him to a place that the Bible describes as godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is, is a deep conviction. It's, it's a wrenching of, a, of the heart that brings us to a place where we want to change, where we want to do something about it. 
This is what godly sorrow does for us. It brings us to a place of repentance. Repentance begins with godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So there's a difference here between godly sorrow that brings us to repentance and change and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is guilt, it's regret, it's remorse, and all of those things leave us unchanged. Guilt just keeps us bound up in a prison of shame and blame, but it it doesn't change us, right? Remorse enslaves people emotionally, Right, so that they're living in, in depression and hopelessness, but it doesn't change them. Regret is, is really just self-pity. It's focusing on your personal loss and your personal pain more than the pain that you've caused other people, more than the pain that you've caused the heart of God. But it doesn't change us. Worldly sorrow leads to death, right? We know that because of Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Matthew 27, 3 says, Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Okay, so that word repent there is not the repentance that I'm talking about. Okay, but it's the Greek word metamelomai, And this is really a description of worldly sorrow. It's someone that is engulfed in grief and regret, seized with guilt. It depicts an emotion that produces no inward or outward change. It really means remorse. Okay, if you look in your Bible in Matthew chapter 27, it's probably not even translated as repent. It's probably translated as remorse. So Judas felt remorse. He was devastated by his guilt. He felt terrible for what he did, and he felt terrible for himself. But it didn't lead to repentance. That's how we know it's not godly sorrow. It didn't lead to change. He didn't change his heart and his life. He didn't come into right relationship with Jesus. But because he lived in worldly sorrow, It brought him where? Death. It brought him to death. He he ended up killing himself. Worldly sorrow brings death. And, And that's so sad because forgiveness was available to Judas. How many of you know that Jesus died for Judas too? And so repentance is a heart decision to change. Right? And that decision, once we make that decision then it's empowered by the Holy Spirit to lead us to that freedom. Amen. So David, he's in this place of godly sorrow, and soon after he writes Psalm 51. Okay, so let's look at this Holy Spirit-inspired prayer of repentance. We're going to look at it verse by verse so we can live in the freedom that Christ provided. Does that sound okay? 
That sounds like a pretty good deal. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for today. I, I thank you, God, for your presence in this place. I, I thank you, Lord, for, for loving us. I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I thank you for your grace. And God, we thank you for repentance. We thank you that we can repent. We thank you for the freedom to repent and the freedom that comes with repentance. And God, my prayer today in your heart today, I believe, is that everyone in this room can stand in the freedom of repentance, that everyone in this room will be right standing with you. No matter where we're at in our relationship with you, no matter where we're at when we came through those doors today, we're going to leave through those doors changed by your love and by your grace. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin. I know that was a long intro, um, but, but when I have those long intros, I'm, I'm still aware of the time, okay? And, and, and I'll be honest with you that... Having a, a camera crew here today, okay, that means I have to suck in my stomach for like 35 minutes, and so I'm not going to speak longer than I have to, okay, because this is not easy. There's a lot, there's a lot to, to bring in, okay? Okay, Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2 says, have mercy upon me, O God according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Number one, true repentance appeals to the mercy of God. True repentance appeals to the mercy of God. David uses that Hebrew word, hased. Hased is one of the richest words in the Old Testament, in the Bible, okay? It's translated as mercy, unfailing love. It's a loyal love, a steadfast, unwavering love that doesn't pass away with every infraction. Exodus 34 is an example of said. It says, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That's a said. It's used in respect to covenant, our blood covenant agreement with Jesus. The never-ending promise of love, a love that's that's consistent even when we're not consistent. It's the disposition of God's heart to show amazing grace to those he loves. So David appeals to that. He throws himself at the mercy of the court and he begs God, deal with me according to your steadfast love. The, the loyal love that you've demonstrated from generation to generation, please don't treat me according to what my sins deserve. But I plead for Hesed, your faithful and loving kindness. 
David's saying, God, I don't deserve it. But I plead for the greatness of your love. How many of you need the greatness of his love? That's who said. And David pleads for this according to the multitude of God's tender mercies. There's a tenderness attached to his grace. It's not harsh and it's not reluctant. Kind of like the mercy that sometimes we give. Right? There's sometimes there's an edge to our forgiveness. Do you know what I'm talking about? When someone hurts us. Right? And they come and they apologize and, and, and there's a bit of a, a hesitancy, a reluctancy. There's a bit of an edge sometimes. Right? Will you please forgive me? Think about it. <laughs> right? And we can see that harshness and that reluctance in, our, in, in people's faces. But God has a tenderness to his grace. His face is gentle and welcoming. And we approach the Lord in our sin. And we approach the Lord in shame. But he lifts our head. He's eager to forgive. That's the God that we serve. David appeals to that tenderness, and he has three asks. He asks God to do three things. Number one, blot out my sin. That, that's the same verb used in Genesis with the flood when God says he wants to blot out mankind, that he wanted to wipe the slate clean and to start all over again. That's what we can have in God's forgiveness. He says, wash me thoroughly. This is about cleansing his soul. See, David, David has is, is, been made aware to his condition. He can see the dirtiness inside of him. God makes him aware. The Holy Spirit made him aware of his condition. You know, when, when we're kids and we go outside and we play and, and we're all dirty and, and we want to run back inside, who makes us aware of our condition of dirtiness? It's Pastor Mandy. No, it's, she raised her hand. It's mom. It's mom's, right? Remember one time I came back from a play day, <clears throat> last day of school, and it was rainy. And I came back filthy, just head to toe in mud. But I didn't care. I was, you know, 12, 13 years old. I'm about to walk in the house. And my mom's like, no. No, you're not. She made me strip down to my underwear. All the neighbors can see me. And she blasted me with a hose for 10 minutes. She, she, made, she made me aware of my condition, right? And they, David asked to cleanse. And this word cleanse, it's more referring to like a ceremonial cleansing, like getting something ready for religious use. So God's saying, David's saying, God, cleanse me again so that you can use me again. Let's keep going. Psalm 51, verses 3 to 6. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. 
against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Number two, real repentance doesn't make excuses, but takes full responsibility. Real repentance doesn't make excuses, but takes full responsibility responsibility. David acknowledges sin. He calls them transgressions. See, transgression, it's, it's more than just missing the mark. It, it's more than just making a mistake, but it's, it's a sin. It's not a sin that you just stumble into, but it's a premeditated action. That's a transgression. It's sinning on purpose. It's deciding to sin even though you know it's wrong, because that's what David did. Repent, real repentance is honest. David doesn't try to minimize his sin. He doesn't call it a moment of weakness. He doesn't call it a minor discretion, indiscretion. He doesn't call it a mistake. But David calls it what it is. What, what does he call it? Evil. Evil. He said, God, this is evil. This is a wicked, evil thing that I've done. David takes accountability even for being a sinner. Not just for his sin, but even for being a sinner. Some might say, God, this isn't my fault. I was born into sin. Right? I, I, didn't, I didn't eat from the apple. Right? I didn't bring sin into the world. Right? This is, this is on Adam. Right? It's his fault. But David acknowledges that Adam was our perfect representative in the garden and that God judged him perfectly. So David in this portion of scripture, he's not just saying, God forgive me for my sin, but, but also God forgive me for being a sinner. He's taking full accountability. Real repentance takes full accountability. And David doesn't try to vindicate himself. <clears throat> he has no justification, he has no defense, but he actually vindicates God. David says, what I've done is wrong, it's evil. And God, whatever you decide is right. If you save me or kill me, you're right. Whatever your judgment, you are blameless and just. You won't hear any complaining from me. And we know, we know that's what David knows in his heart and believes in his heart. Because what was the consequence to David's sin? The consequence was that he was going to lose his child, the child that he had with Bathsheba. That was the consequence to that sin. And he, and he took a week of praying and fasting and weeping and begging and crying out to God to please save this child, and the child died. But you know what David's response was when the child died? He cleaned himself up. And he went to church. He didn't complain. He didn't say, that's not fair. Because he believed that whatever God did was just. That God had that right as our holy God. It's like the thieves on the cross on either side of Jesus in Luke 23 one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? 
Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for, getting, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. See, an unrepentant man says, I don't deserve to die. I deserve to be saved. That's what the criminal says. Save yourself, Jesus, and save me. But a repentant man says, I deserve everything coming to me, Lord. The only plea of a repentant heart is I'm guilty. That's it. And that's what it means to be truly repentant. That, that what it means, that's what it means to have godly sorrow, to acknowledge your guilt and your sin and plead for mercy, but understanding that God has every right to punish us by his justice. Every right as a holy God. An unrepentant heart will try to justify themselves, but a repentant heart will only see their justification in Jesus, outside of themselves. Do you remember when, when that woman who was caught in adultery, remember she was dragged before Jesus, right? And, and they're all ready to stone her to death because of the law. And what does Jesus say? He says, listen, anyone who is without sin, you go ahead and you can cast the first stone. And then what happens? Everyone drops their stones and walks away. But there was one person there who had the right to stone her to death. There was one person there without sin. And that was Jesus. Right? But what did Jesus say? He says, where are those who condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. She violated the law. Jesus had every right to condemn her, but he chose to grant her mercy instead of exercise justice. The grounds for her pardon were 100% in Jesus, not in anything she could say or do or plead. We have no defense. Jesus and only Jesus is our justification. It's only because Jesus says, I will not condemn you. How many of you are so glad that Jesus said, I will not condemn you? Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a God. Verse 7 and 8 says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. So again, David's outward sin exposed that there, there's something wrong inwardly. And so he's asking God to remove that sin from his heart. And, and he says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was, was a plant, is a shrub. And, and the priest would dip the branch of the hyssop plant in blood to sprinkle and to cleanse people from sickness and sin. In Leviticus 14, hyssop was a very important part of cleansing the leper. 
And so David is comparing the sin in his heart to that of the disease of the leper. And just as God can cleanse the leper of the disease of leprosy, he can cleanse us from the disease of sin. Amen? And that cleansing will allow us to have joy again. See, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it was so heavy on David that David suggests that his bones were crushed by it. That it was, it was so hard that it, it hurt him tremendously. And that's number three, is true repentance involves the pain of conviction. True repentance includes, involves the pain of conviction. Of conviction. Real grace is a call to godly sorrow. And real transformation comes from acknowledging our condition and our need for a Savior. And so the conviction of the Holy Spirit, although it may be painful, how many of you know that sometimes the conviction of the Holy Spirit can be painful? Can anyone testify to that? But it always points to Jesus and restoration. The Holy Spirit conviction, please hear this, always leads to a way out of our sin into forgiveness and grace and love. Every time. Every time. It's like a good father who disciplines his child that he dearly loves. Right? This is how we know the difference between Satan's condemnation and Holy Spirit conviction. Because Satan's condemnation accuses and blames and it will only lead to despair, enslavement, and hopelessness to that sin. That's how you know that's the enemy trying to condemn you. But that's not the Holy Spirit. Okay, God's conviction lovingly shows us our sin so we can be free from it and be restored to him. Verse 9 to 13. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. There's a lot there. I'm just going to talk, focus on two things. I think... The first thing that really impacts me about this portion of scripture is David asking God to hide his face from his sin. The last thing that we want to do when we're in our shame is to see the face of God. To look into his holiness and his love hurts a lot. I often think of Peter with this. When Peter had denied even knowing Jesus three times, just like Jesus predicted, the night that Jesus was arrested. And then across the courtyard, right after the last time he denies Jesus, he sees Jesus in custody. And their eyes lock. 
And I don't know about you, but I can't imagine how Peter felt in that moment. Because there's been times in my life where I've not wanted to lift my head to God. And that's that painful place of godly sorrow. But again, we serve a God that lifts our head. We serve a God that welcomes us with open arms. We serve a God that made a way where there was no way. We serve a God of grace and love and mercy. What a savior. What a God. And again, David realizes the problem in his, is his heart. He needs heart surgery. He says, God, I don't want you to just forgive me, but I want you to change me. Number four, true repentance means change. Our problem is inconsistency. Is that true? But David is asking for a heart that will consistently obey God. And this change, this is evidence of repentance. Matthew 3, 8 says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Live in a way that shows you have turned away from your sins. How many of you know that we're not saved because we change our life? But our changed life is evidence of a repentant and a transformed heart. Amen? If we have truly repented, our lives will show it. It's going to bear the fruit of repentance. People should be able to see if someone's living for Christ by how they live their life. Galatians 5 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Do you know that we have a choice through the cross to turn our backs on sin and live in righteousness through the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives? That there is power in the Holy Spirit for us to live for Christ and not have to go back to our old way of living? That we can make the decision to walk away from sin and the Holy Spirit is the power that enforces that decision? That Jesus broke the power of sin and the Holy Spirit empowers us to live in that victory? Yeah. Hallelujah. <clears throat> and then verse <clears throat> 14 to 19. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. 
Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and, and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Okay, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot there. Um, but I, I just want us to understand this. That, that verse 14 to, to 19, it, it, it's again a confirmation of what God desires in repentance. That he doesn't desire sacrifice, but a broken and contrite heart. He, he doesn't need you to say 10 Hail Marys. He doesn't need that from you. He doesn't need you to do a bunch of good deeds. He doesn't need you to make a bunch of promises that you can't keep. He doesn't need you to do those things. He just needs a broken and remorseful heart. See, there's a difference between attrition and contrition. Attrition is when someone has many tears because of personal loss and pain, or they've got many tears from the consequences of sin or fear of punishment, right? It's like when a child is caught in sin, right? They're, they're more upset because they're going to be punished more than they're actually sorry, right? My mom always tells me of when I was young in church, I don't know how old I was, I'm assuming very young, <laughs> And, uh, and whenever I would misbehave in church, I would get, she'd pull me out of church and I'd get a spank. And she talks about how one time, uh, you know, I, I don't know what I did wrong, but she starts, she grabs me, pulls me out, and the whole way out I'm shouting, I'd be good, I'd be good! But, but I'm not shouting that because I was sorry, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm shouting that because I knew what was coming, right? That's attrition. That's attrition, okay? Contrition is genuine. <laughs> Manoa liked that one. Contrition is it's genuine sorrow for offending God. Right, those who are poor in spirit, those who have been brought low, who approach God in humility, mourning their sin. The promise here is that God will never turn those people away. Isn't that amazing? That when you come with that contrite heart, no matter what you've done, God will never turn you away. What a God. What a Savior. I just want to close with this scripture. I believe God wants us to repent so that we can know the joy of his forgiveness. And if there was a psalm that would follow Psalm 51, I would say it would be Psalm 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose reward the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. 
My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I'll confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgive me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there's still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. Hallelujah. So I invite our worship team forward. We're going to sing one more song here. And, and what I'd like us to do in this, in this moment is I'd like you to just spend some time with the Lord. Just spend some time with the Lord. Spend some time listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And then respond, okay, to whatever the Holy Spirit's calling you to do. But let's leave this place right standing before God. Does that sound good? Let's go from Psalm 51 to Psalm 32. Amen?